0: What's life really like for a prisoner at Gitmo? Mark Danner will talk about Guantanamo Diary by Mohamedou Ould slahi which he reviews on our cover this week.
1: You know, he recounts the treatment he was given, the various tortures that were applied to him, and in some detail he tells us the falsehoods that he created.
0: What is OCD, and can its sufferers do anything about it? Our guest, David Adam, knows something about this personally and will join us to talk about his new book, The Man Who Couldn't Stop.
2: Hours and hours and hours of somebody's day, just constantly whirling around in this this cycle of intrusive thought and then having to respond to that somehow.
0: Alexander Alter will be here with notes from the publishing world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Mark Danner joins us now. He reviews on the cover this week a, an important and very unusual book, Guantanamo Diary by Mohamedou Ould Slahi. Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Pamela.
0: Give us a little background about this book and how it came into being.
1: Well, this book was written in California, uh by a man who was uh, seized by forces of the United States. In 2002, he was arrested in Mauritania, which is his home. Uh, He was extraordinarily rendered to Jordan for interrogation. Then he was shipped to Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan for more interrogation. Uh, And then he was flown to Guantanamo Bay prison, where he remains to this day. So he's been imprisoned for about 13 years. And at a certain point in 2005, he was given paper and allowed to write down his memoirs, uh, which he wrote in pencil in his fourth language, a language, English, which he picked up in Guantanamo prison itself. He wrote this document. Um, it was immediately classified by the government. Slahi's lawyers have been fighting for more than six years now. To get it released. And the document finally was gone over by the government, uh, agents from the CIA who blacked out and redacted various sections. So their pages, uh, pages on end are simply black bars. I think there are 2,500 redactions in total in the book. But it remains, but for those redactions of the document that Muhammad al Slahi wrote in the summer of 2005 describing his experience in Guantanamo and other parts of the US black site system interrogation system that's it's a unique book that nothing else exists like it i think
0: i mean how did this get to publication was it his attorneys who contacted a publisher did he want this to be published did he know when he was writing it that it would be for intended for a wider audience or was it something that he did you know for himself while imprisoned?
1: Those are wonderful questions, and a number of them we simply can't answer because we have no access to the author. Uh, Slahi remains imprisoned and incommunicado, so we don't know what his intentions really were. It seems to be an ambitious document. I would not be at all surprised if he had hoped, as he wrote it, that it would find uh, a broader audience. On the other hand, he could have had no rational hope that this actually would happen, because there he was in Guantanamo, and as I say, it was immediately classified secret. And really the lawyers uh, were, his lawyers were the ones who pushed through and finally got permission uh, to publish it. He actually, uh, Larry Simes, is the editor of the book, and he um, notes that the book has been edited twice, uh, once by him, once by the government redactors. And that the author has seen neither one of those editings. That you know, uh, the author uh, has not seen the book and has not seen the editing that was done. But we don't we don't really know what his intentions are beyond the fact that he wanted to tell the truth. Uh, about what happens at Guantanamo and in the system of uh, interrogation that the United States has constructed after 9-11.
0: I want to get to the content, obviously, of the book itself, but just one more question about this process, because it is so unusual, um, and the book is now on the bestseller list. Um, presumably, he is not aware of that, um, and we, we actually then don't even know if, if he wanted it to be a book is what you're saying we we don't actually know if if that if his intention was to have it published or not
1: i think we can be pretty certain by internal evidence mm-hmm. uh that that he had intended this to be his memoir and that he would be very happy to know that it was published and i and i would assume he knows now from his lawyers uh that it has been published that's just my assumption right. i don't know the details of the communications Um, But what we certainly do know is there's not going to be an author tour, an author publicity tour for this book. It's splendid. I think that it's a bestseller, but the circumstances of its author and its authorship remain uh, uniquely sad.
0: Let's talk about uh, Mohamedou uh, Slahi, the man, and what the circumstances were of his arrest. And he was 30 years old, he was an electrical engineer, how did he come to the attention of the Americans, of intelligence community. Why, why did they arrest him?
1: Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that he was a member, he had been a member, I should say, of Al-Qaeda. He joined Al-Qaeda in the early 90s at a time when it was fighting in Afghanistan in effect on the side of the United States. So it was a very different Al-Qaeda. It had not yet uh, declared war against the United States. Uh, it was not yet fighting against the United States. It had not yet attacked the United States. He was fighting in Afghanistan, uh, under their banner. He also has a fairly close, well, I shouldn't say close relative. It's a distant cousin who also happened to be married to his sister for a while, uh, who is a close, was a close advisor of Osama bin Laden. Uh, he knew Ramzi bin al-Shib, who was one of the planners of the 9-11 plot. So, He's not simply a guy wandering around the streets who was picked up by a stake. He certainly uh, had connections to Al Qaeda and earlier Al Qaeda before the attacks, as I said. And there was reason for suspicion without a doubt.
0: But Ramsey Bin Al Sheeb later on said that, that Slaki was one of the main recruiters for 9 11 under interrogation.
1: Yes, he said that under what seems to have been very brutal interrogation in Morocco, in a black site, a secret site in Morocco. Uh, One of the fascinating things about this book is it shows in very intricate detail how the methods of interrogation used by the United States contributed to creating a tissue of falsehoods and lies, simply by brutalizing people to the extent that they needed to make up things to satisfy their interrogators. And it shows that in very intimate terms uh, when it comes to Muhammadu Slahi. It shows what, you know, he recounts the treatment he was given, the various tortures that were applied to him. And in some detail, he tells us the falsehoods that he created. Um, the kind of lies and, and uh, fantasies that he spun and that pleased to no end his interrogators. Uh, he created plots out of thin air. He implicated people who, about his guilt, he knew nothing at all. He m- just made things up because he felt he had no choice but to do so. And one theme in the book is his guilt about doing that. But even as he's doing that, you have Ramzi bin al-Shib in Morocco being tortured fairly heavily apparently making up, confirming, I should say, interrogator's suspicions about Mohamedou Slahi, who at the same time is in Guantanamo. So you have a system of kind of self-reinforcing fiction going on, uh, whereby several people, many people, are under the force of brutal interrogation, uh, left with no choice but to try to satisfy the interrogator's own beliefs. Uh, And own fantasies about their guilt. This isn't to say that some of these people interrogated weren't guilty. Some of them certainly were. But it also seems very convincing to me reading Slahi's book. The interrogators in many cases forced him to say things that simply weren't true. Uh, And this happened repeatedly.
0: So just to take the point of a skeptical questioner for a minute, and they say, well, look, this guy, as you said, he was a member of Al-Qaeda, he had these various connections. How do we know, or do we know, or does it come across in this book that he is, in fact, not guilty of any of these things?
1: It's a fascinating question. And I think that the book cannot prove definitively that he is innocent. The nature of the charges are such that they cannot be disproved by Mohammed Ul Slahi beyond pointing to certain concrete details. For example, he's accused repeatedly of being the mastermind of the Millennium Plot to blow up the Los Angeles International Airport. Uh, and he's accused of this because he went to the same mosque in Montreal as Ahmed Razam, the Millennium Plotter. But it eventually is proved. He claims it, and it eventually is proved that he arrived in Montreal, that is Mohamedou Slahi, after Rizam had left. But in many cases, there are factual realities which contradict the charges of the interrogators. But there are other times when we really have, when we talk about the guilt of Slahi, we really get down to the issue of suspicion, fact, and true guilt. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fact is that if we go under the reasoning, say, of former Vice President Dick Cheney, it's simply better to take a guy like this about whom you have suspicions and lock him away. It's simply safer. And all right, he might be innocent, it's conceivable, but the country can't afford to take that kind of risk. Therefore, we have to put him in indefinite detention and keep him away uh, from any plotting and any danger to the United States for the rest of his life. That's one way to think of it, and in fact, that is the path that the United States has followed. But there's another way, which is that we only punish people or imprison them indefinitely when there can be demonstrated that they have some guilt, that they have done things that show them to be guilty, and I think it's pretty convincingly has been pretty convincingly shown that Flaherty has not done this. In 2010, a federal district judge granted his habeas corpus petition and ordered him set free. Uh that's because that judge James Robertson was convinced there was no provable were no provable charges in his dossier that the government had succeeded in proving. The United States government appealed this decision, and Slahi remains in jail. If your question is, is it possible he is guilty uh, of doing certain things that might at one time have threatened the United States, I think the answer is it's possible. If the question is, is he a threat to the United States, I think the answer to that is no. No.
0: In your review, you refer to the book as, um, I'm going to quote, a kind of dark masterpiece, a sometimes unbearable epic of pain, anguish, and bitter humor that the Dostoevsky of the House of the Dead would have recognized and embraced. What level of detail does he give about the torture that he undergoes?
1: I think there probably is no more detailed, more convincing and more viscerally powerful account of what the United States did to prisoners uh, than Slahi's book. The only thing that rivals it is the Red Cross report, in which certain high value detainees like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Zubaydah describe their own waterboarding and the other tortures that they were subjected to. But I think as a full account, of the special interrogation techniques or alternative set of procedures, as President Bush called them, Slahi's account is simply unmatched. And this is because he was subjected to a great many techniques, including uh, prolonged isolation, prolonged sleep deprivation, submersion in freezing water, beatings of various kinds. The whole list. Um, of alternative set of procedures he was subjected to, with the, with the single exception really of waterboarding. He was imprisoned in a dark room, and uh, music was pay- played at 100 decibels or so over and over again throughout the night. Uh, he was kept up for day after day after day after day. Uh, he was threatened with death. He was rowed out into the Caribbean uh, and threatened with drowning. He was told that his mother was going to be brought to Guantanamo and gang raped. The unending series of repugnant techniques that were applied to him, including sexual molestation by female guards, really makes for striking uh, and sickening reading. What is, I think, um, invaluable in his account is that he's extremely intelligent And he describes these techniques and what happened to him in a sensitive, detailed, self-knowing way. Uh, The book, oddly enough, at the same time as it's wrenching to read and heartbreaking and very moving in parts, is also rather funny. He has a light touch, and though his English is limited, it's very effective. He's obviously a very intelligent man.
0: You mentioned um, his mother in the context of these threats and, and forms of torture. Um, when he was arrested, of course, it was right in front of his mother. And he dedicates the book to his mother, who's, who has subsequently died. Um,
1: yes, it's very sad. Um, one of the saddest little passages in the book, which I quote in the review, uh, is when he's taken away from his mother and drives, he's asked to to take his own car and drive to the intelligence headquarters in Mauritania, and he watches her and and, uh, his sister disappear in the rearview mirror of his car. He somehow knows he won't see them again, or at least that's the implication. And in fact, she's she's died since, so he never did see her again. And for the longest time, she didn't know where he was. He had simply disappeared. Uh, And there's something just deeply cruel about that it seems to me the reader does gain an appreciation to some degree for his family for his background there's not a lot in there about those things but what is there is is pretty powerful um, he comes across as a very fully drawn person um, he's a, he's an exceptional writer and it's interesting the book you know I compare I think the three Authors I mentioned in a, the two I mentioned in addition to Dostoevsky are Beckett um, and Kafka. Beckett accounts for the humor in some of the book. These clerks who laugh at him when he says he's done nothing, and they're various sort of Beckett-like scenes, uh, but Kafka looms over its pages everywhere.
0: That requires no uh, explanation.: and,
1: Yes. What do you do when you're declared guilty and you don't know your crime? This isn't quite true, of course. He knows vaguely what they think he did, but it looms yeah. over the entire book, that spirit, Kafka spirit, I think.
0: I just want to talk finally about what's not in the book. Um, you mentioned that there are about 2,500 redactions. In, we re- reproduced some of these in your review where we quote from the book. When you were reading it, do you find yourself trying to figure out what's behind there? I mean, it's so, given the level of detail that's in here, it just makes you wonder what was taken out other than names.
1: It's fascinating, though, because they offer this remarkable view into the mentality that Slahi is describing in the rest of the book when he talks about the interrogators. I mean, you're essentially getting this view of the institution of American intelligence as seen through what they think they have to cross out of the book to keep the public from knowing. In truth, many of them are absurd and stupid, many of these redactions. For example, there's an obsession uh, with taking out personal pronouns when the interrogator is a female. So you will know consistently the the word she is taken out. Uh, She then did this, she then did that. But almost always in one of these passages, one of the shes will be retained. They simply are very sloppy. So you can tell exactly what it is. They're just taking out she.
0: Simplistic and sloppy.
1: Yes, simplistic and sloppy. And you think, what are they possibly gaining by taking out she? It makes no sense. You know they're female interrogators, he he tells you. They also remove things like there's a remark at one point about Nasser, about Gamal Abdel Nasser, the former and late ruler of Egypt, uh, who, of course, you know, has been dead 40 years. And he's mentioned twice. And one time, the first time, the name is redacted. And you think, what could they have been thinking? Why did they redact the name of Nasser? The only explanation that occurs to me is that this particular reader might not even have known who that was. Uh, So it seems utterly futile and and sort of pig-headed that this has been done. It's adhering to a rule that makes no sense. The redactions seem to reflect on the insanity of the interrogation itself that's going on amid them, that's being described amid these black marks, uh, the redactions seem to cast some kind of light on um, the relentlessness, the pig-headedness, the stubbornness, uh, and the general stupidity of much of what goes on. Because one of the things that becomes clear, as you get to know Slahi, is that he probably was a lot smarter than most of his interrogators. And this becomes clear, it also becomes clear that they knew it. Um, And it's an interesting dynamic in the book because he's obviously a very intelligent man.
0: It's a fascinating book, both for what it doesn't contain and, of course, uh, for what is actually in there. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for your review.
1: It's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: The book, again, is Guantanamo Diary by Mohamedou Ould-Slahi, edited by Larry Seams and reviewed on our cover this week by Mark Danner. Alexander Alter is here now with news from the literary world. What's going on, Alexander?
3: So we're pretty early in 2015, but it looks like we already have our first breakout big bestseller, and it's one that I'm sure you've heard of now, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. The thing that's interesting about this book taking off so quickly, it's already got 300,000 copies in print, up from a first printing of 40,000 copies, is that you don't usually see... um, authors from overseas just exploding out of the gate here. And that's what happened with Paula Hawkins. She's from England and she's basically unknown. She's published other novels, but under a pen name. And romance novels, romance right? novels, romantic comedies, which really is not her forte. I spoke to her and she's she confessed that she's got a very dark side and she found herself injecting kind of violence and tragedy into these fluffy romantic comedies. And that's when she decided she really needed to explore this other side of herself as a writer. But it's kind of an interesting publishing story. You know, they expected this book to do well, but to the extent that it has taken off, you know, everyone was unprepared. They just keep going back to the printer. And this book sort of fits into this new trend of young female crime writers who are exploring sort of literary suspense in a new way. So mm-hmm. people like, you know, Gillian Flynn and Harriet Lane, who's also from England, and even Megan Abbott and Tana French. These are sort of not, they're not conventional thrillers or conventional crime stories, but they really um, take characters and situations and sort of build suspense into them that way. And the writing is mm-hmm. very sharp. Very sharp writing. And, you know, the girl on the train, like Gone Girl, has an unreliable narrator. In this case, it's an alcoholic woman who is prone to frequent blackouts. And then she's convinced that she's witnessed something from a train that could be key to solving this girl's disappearance. And so she can't really trust her own memories, and no one else will trust her. So it's got that kind of element built in where you don't know if she's telling the truth, and she doesn't even know if she's telling the truth. No spoilers. No spoilers. Um, Who's published this book? So this is from Riverhead, which is another interesting kind of piece of it, because they're known for publishing literary fiction like Chang-Ru Lee and Husseini, and they don't really do thrillers. But um, the editor there, Sarah McGrath, told me that she read this book and she felt like the writing was of such a high quality and sort of the issues that it tackles were so sort of complex and meaty that she felt like it fit really well on their list. Was it published in the UK first? It came out at the same time. It was a simultaneous publication and it's sold now in 33 countries. And it's been a um, it's an option for a film by DreamWorks. How's it doing over over there? Over there, it's doing incredibly well. They wouldn't real they wouldn't share sales figures with me, but they've reprinted it six times already, and it's at the top of the bestseller list, like it is here. Um, so she's really, you know, she's a little bit stunned by the whole thing. I mean, she, you know, someone who's written several no- novels under a pen name that never sold especially well, you know, she was particularly unprepared for this. But is she already working on another book? She's working on another book. Um, it's, she told me it's a little bit late already. It was supposed to be turned in by December, but she's been really swept up in all the fuss around this novel. So
0: something tells me it won't be a romance.
3: No, no, it's it's of a piece with the girl on the train. It's she said it's kind of suspense, but it's about sisters. And there's a sort of gothic theme to it. So it sounds kind of Bronte-esque. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Alexander. Thanks for having me.
0: David Adam joins me now from London. He is the author of a new book, The Man Who Couldn't Stop. OCD and the true story of a life lost in thought. Hi, David. Hello. So um, you are an editor at uh, and writer at Nature magazine in London, um, and you um, have OCD and had OCD for a long time when you were working as a writer, as a science writer. When did you realize that you had OCD?
2: Well, I realized that I had very strange thoughts and fears and anxieties around HIV. Uh, when I was a student, I was 19 or 20, and I was having these, what I knew were ridiculous fears about ways that I may have course, it, extremely unlikely ways. I think I was, I finally saw a psychiatrist a few years later, and I was, I think, formally diagnosed with OCD in, in the mid 90s, but I only really got proper help um, about four years ago.
0: And the obsession with O C D and with the fear that you might have AIDS began in November of nineteen ninety. There was a very specific incident. Can you just tell that story?
2: Sure. So I um this this contains what I suppose they call adult themes. Um I met a girl, um and we went back to her her place. I was a student. A friend asked me the next day whether we had slept together, whether we'd had sex, and I lied that we had. He then asked me if I'd Want a condom? And I said no. And he said, "Oh, you could have AIDS." Now, I hadn't slept with her. I could not have caught AIDS from her. But something about that conversation stuck in my head, and a few months later, it it just burst its banks and wreaked havoc. And I started to think that not only had I caught AIDS from this girl who I hadn't slept with, but I could have caught it in any manner of unlikely ways.
0: And you started to call the national AIDS helpline.
2: So yeah, so this is, so OCD is is a thought and then a behavioural response. And most people think they are familiar with the behavioural response, you know, which can be washing your hands or whatever. But uh, in my case, the, the compulsion was was to to try and get reassurance that I haven't caught HIV in these ways. So I would compulsively call this at the time. There was a helpline that you could you could ring up and get information. And I would ring them, you know, dozens of times a day, and they would always give me the same answer, which was no, no, you couldn't have caught it uh, in that way. The chances, uh, you know, almost zero. And I would put the phone down and then think, well, almost zero. So it's not zero. So maybe they hadn't completely understood, or maybe the circumstances had been slightly different. The fears and the anxiety would begin again, and I'd have to call them back and explain this situation again and to be told again that there was there was no real risk and this would go on and on.
0: The staffers on the line began to recognise you.
2: They did, yes. <laughs> I so I used to I used to um put on fake voices and regional accents and if they recognized your voice they would just say, Look, we just spoke to you and we gave you an answer, you need to go away and accept it. And I, I didn't want that. I wanted the the hit of reassurance because I thought the next time I get it, it's going to stick, it's going to last, but it, it doesn't.
0: How long did this go on for?
2: Well, I mean, I, I had ocd severely for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years probably, um, and it wasn't always around the same incident. You know, it was almost like this thing would would obsess my mind until a new one came along, and then I could see the previous one was silly, but I was now convinced that the latest incident was the one I needed to be concerned about. So yeah, it went on for a huge amount of time and it sounds ridiculous now because I, I feel a bit better now and even I find it hard to accept that I spent so much of my life wrapped up in this. But it it really does. It takes hours and hours and hours of somebody's day just constantly whirling around in this this cycle of intrusive thought and then having to respond to that somehow.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, the words fear and anxiety. Is obsessive-compulsive disorder an anxiety disorder?
2: It used to be, officially. um, When the American Psychiatric Association last year produced a new sort of set of guidelines, and it moved OCD into its own category and away from the anxiety disorders. And so it says that it's, um, it's tried to group OCD with other conditions which are also characterized by obsessive thoughts or compulsive behaviors so for example hoarding disorder where people compulsively keep stuff in their house or um, compulsive hair pulling or skin picking on the ground it doesn't make a huge amount of difference really I mean anxiety is still a large feature of OCD but I think that their thinking is that there's something which drives the anxiety so the almost is a response to to an obsessive thought and therefore it's the obsessive thought and the compulsive response that should be focused on.
0: Is it not just in the origins of the, or the drive behind the anxiety, but also in the fact that there's a very specific behavior that results that differentiates it from other anxiety disorders?
2: What differentiates OCD is that we have what's called insight. Um, So we know that what we are worried about is ridiculous. So you, you might be anxious, for example, about a job interview. But that's, that's normal. That's natural because you want to get the job and the consequences if you don't get the job could be severe. Whereas the the thoughts that, that we have, so I knew I couldn't catch HIV from scraping my hand on a piece of glass. I knew I couldn't. You know, I'm a, I'm a scientist by training and yet I couldn't shake that thought and I I knew having that thought was, was wrong. And, and so in a way, you get a, you get a double whammy. You get the, the anxiety caused by the fear of having HIV, but you also get the anxiety of why am I thinking this? Whereas nobody ever would doubt why they are anxious about having a job interview is because they know it's important. And and it makes sense for them to be anxious about that in a way.
0: So you understood from a rational standpoint that your behavior was irrational, but you felt at the time sort of incapable of stopping it.
2: Exactly that. Yeah. You can't stop thoughts. All you can stop is, is your behavior, which is why one of the treatments for OCD is about changing that behavior. And even now, even though I say I've had treatment and I feel better, I still have obsessive thoughts about HIV. You know, I have a, I have a little nick on my thumb today and I'm very aware of where I'm putting my hand. I can spot a Band-Aid at 100 yards. You know, someone right. has got one on their hand. What I have power over is my response to that, is my behavior. So I can stop myself checking my hands constantly to make sure that I haven't transferred blood to them.
0: Now, a traditional Freudian or psychoanalytic approach would say, okay, this has origins somewhere in childhood. Do you feel like there's validity to that?
2: I think there's certainly validity that um, there are some origins in childhood. But I, I don't think you have to sort of subscribe to the Freudian belief there's quite a strong case that Howard Hughes, who had very extreme OCD in his later years, may have been influenced by his mother who had an acute fear of polio. So she would go out of her way to make sure that um, the young Howard Hughes didn't catch polio um, or didn't contract polio. And so uh, childhood experiences are hugely formative and they make they make us the kind of people we are in, in adult life and, and psychologically they work in that way too. So. Definitely the kind of mindset that you have as an adult is influenced by your experience as a child um, and that mindset can help drive whether you develop OCD or not because what's important to say is the kind of thought that, that can get stuck in OCD are really common they're, they're, they're almost everybody has them but not everybody treats them in the way that we do that people with OCD do and so I don't think you have to subscribe to. Freud's ideas of sort of repressed sexual desires to see that childhood is very, very influential in, in, in your psychological makeup.
0: When you look back, this incident that we talked about earlier, um, the sexual encounter when you were first-year college student, um, do you see before that that there, was any, that there were any incidents or episodes that you hadn't previously noticed but that you now, you know, in retrospect, see as OCD-like?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I, but I think there is this sort of what you could call a subclinical level of OCD. You know, there is this little phrase that people use, oh, I'm, you know, a little bit OCD about that. And, and some people would OCD get a bit cross about that. But actually, lots of people do have it a little bit. And so I, you know, I would always check the back door was locked three times or I would always make sure that I had my passport in my pocket when I was going to the airport and i check again and i check again. That's kind of in the normal scale, most people have some experience of that, but not all of those people develop OCD. So although I had the signs, I suppose, back in the day, so do lots of other people who didn't develop OCD. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily follow that, that I was, you know, that my case was, it was a worsening of those initial stages because we do know that most people have a little bit of obsessive thought and some people have a little bit of compulsive Behavior. So they have a bit of the, the O and the C, but what they probably don't have is, is the disorder, the distress that's caused by that just going haywire. And, and so that's the difference, I think, between people who don't have OCD and people who do. It's about the impact that, that these behaviours and thoughts have on your life.
0: The current statistic, as I understand it, is that between 1% and 3% of people will have OCD in some way over the course of a lifetime does that mean that um for many people ocd can be sort of episodic or it can be you know i had it from when i was 18 to when i was 34 and then i was then i didn't
2: yeah i suppose it could mean that i mean um, there's not huge amounts of evidence that people grow out of it um in time usually you know once you have it you, you're kind of stuck with it until you get treatment I don't want to scare people, but, but the phrasing it in that way could also mean that some people haven't yet developed it. You know, they may go on to develop it. And um, there's lots of evidence that people do develop it in later life, although most people develop it when they're sort of teenagers. I think what it shows is that it's, it's probably a lot more common than people realize. And, and every time I do an interview like this, I always get emails from people saying, oh, my goodness, I thought it was just me. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think the reason people, people don't tend to talk about these kind of strange thoughts because they do tend to be in quite taboo areas like violence or sex or, right. or whatever.
0: Did you keep your own experience with HIV to yourself? Did you, with that did, fear? I yeah. did,
2: I did. When I signed the deal to, to write the book, I said to the publishers, right, you can't tell anybody, you can't announce it because I need to tell my parents, my, my brother first. Because there is that there is that fear that people will judge you because, because you know you shouldn't be thinking these things. And so you don't want other people to think that about you.
0: It seems also that current research indicates, current genetic research, that there may be a hereditary component to OCD. Does that mean, is it sort of like an epigenetic thing where you you might have a predisposition, but it takes certain environmental factors or circumstances? It
2: it could do, yes. The honest answer is that we, we don't really know. We know that it does seem to run in families, so relatives of people with OCD are more likely to get it themselves although that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a genetic link. It could be, as I said, you know, Howard Hughes may have be been influenced by his mother's behavior rather than necessarily his mother's genes. And so when scientists, because we've now got the tools to sort of probe the genetics of disease, and when people have looked at the genetics of OCD, they don't find anything that is strikingly obvious. So, so you know, even if it's genetically controlled, it's not like that there is one gene. Which uh, you know is either on or off to dictate whether dictate whether you get OCD or not. Like most of these things, there is a, probably a genetic component and probably an environmental component. And as you suggest, there may even be an environmental influence on the genetic component. Certainly, we do know that it does seem to be either dormant um, in people before it develops, or that it that it just it comes on from from uh, a standing start.
0: So now that 1% to 3% of our listeners are convinced that they either have OCD or are going to develop it, or maybe 99% of our, our listeners,
2: what, <laughs> what what does treatment mean? So over here in the U.K., and I think it's the same in the U.S., we tend to get a combination of antidepressants, so stuff like Prozac. We're not depressed, but it just seems to help, um, although they're not sure why. And then uh, in tandem with that, you tend to get what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, Which is a bit about, uh, so the cognitive bit is sort of learning about thoughts and the way that you process them and, and realizing that that's what matters rather than having the thoughts at all. And then the behavioral side of it is actually, it's basically giving you the tools to not perform the compulsions. And in the old days, they would actually physically restrain people during this, you know, so they would, someone with OCD about germs, for example, might be told to run their hands through through the trash, and then their hands would be tied so they couldn't wash them. And the idea is that you provoke the anxiety, and then you stop the person with OCD performing the compulsion, which is something that we do to make ourselves feel better and to reduce that anxiety. So the anxiety stays high, and in time, the theory goes, it just has to go down by itself because you cannot remain on high alert indefinitely. And so the theory is that once you feel it go down by itself, uh, you have more confidence that it will go down by itself in the future. So, for example, when I get that thought about could someone else have blood on their hands and we shake hands, rather than me checking my hand for blood as I want to, I now have a relative degree of confidence that if I just live with that anxiety for a bit, it will go down and then you, you you break that cycle that we talked about between the thought and the behavior. Because... By not performing that behavior, the thought's less likely to come back.
0: This might be overthinking it or unlikely, but CBT, as I understand it, is um, you you sort of retrain your brain with new behaviors in order to prevent previous patterns from occurring. If you have that predisposition to something like OCD, is is there not the risk that you sort of retrain your brain and then sort of obsessively do the new behaviors that you learned in order to avoid the old ones?
2: i mean i 'm not a psychologist, mm-hmm. um, I, I suppose there I might be The way I think of it is more that um, I think what they do is identify um, a behavior which has a negative effect, and so taking that away doesn 't necessarily introduce a rival negative effect. so for example, we talked about interpretation of thoughts. Some people believe that to have a thought is the same as to do whatever it is you 're thinking about. so the classic example from the Bible is adultery in the mind is as as bad as in the flesh. So just to think about having sex is as bad as having sex with somebody. So if if you're that way inclined, then to have those thoughts about having sex with somebody who you shouldn't, you're gonna find incredibly distressing. You're gonna think that it's as bad as if you were going out and sleeping with them. Whereas if you learn that actually those thoughts are common and harmless and they do not indicate that you're likely to do that, to follow it through and to perform that behavior, once you recognize that they're just thoughts and they're common and they don't signify anything, then it's much easier to let those thoughts come and go. Now, I don't think there's a downside to that. Um, So in a way, you've taken away something which can cause a negative effect, but you haven't introduced anything
0: else. Um, One last question. You've written this book, as you mentioned before, um, you wrote it, you were very much secretive about this, uh, your own experience with OCD. What's it been like now for you? This is out now, obviously, it's been out in the UK. You go into work every day, all of your colleagues know about it. Was it frightening? Does it feel like a relief? How does it feel?
2: It felt frightening to start with when when I first agreed to do it. But then once I told the first Two or three people it, it got easier and it's now at the point where i talk about it as, as as hopefully i've come across as comfortably without even feeling any kind of anxiety about it i think i think there are, there are two sort of things one is that uh part of the the distress of ocd is that you keep it secret um just because you just do because of the nature of, of the condition and and you can hide it you know you can't hide something like schizophrenia And so I always felt like I was living a a, a sort of false life in a way, you know, Um, I was always having a a rival conversation in my head thinking that if I didn't have OCD, I'd be doing this differently and doing that differently. And if only they knew, whereas now everyone knows. And so I don't feel that um, duplicity anymore. Um, And also, it's just nothing bad has happened since I've been talking about it. Nothing bad, um, you know, it's got to the point where my friends joke about it now. So that's. I think, shows that they just accept it. It's just part of who I am. Yeah, I, haven't, I honestly have not experienced a single thing that, I, that would make me regret being open about it.
0: Well, you can stop worrying about it then. <laughs> um, the book, again, <laughs> is The Man Who Couldn't Stop, OCD and the True Story of a Life Lost in Thought by David Adam. David, thanks so much. Greg Coles has
4: bestseller news. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela.
0: It looks like a busy week.
4: Uh, Yeah, there's some new books. uh, But before I get to those, I wanted to take you back a few weeks. Uh, You may remember that in my column about a month ago, I reprinted a nonfiction bestseller list from 30 years ago, um, talking about how the list really hasn't changed much in that time. Um, The categories of books were all basically the same as, as what's on the list now. Um, Well, in this past weekend's book review, we ran a letter from a reader named Jean Bergantini Grillo, who said the categories of books may not have changed, but the authors have um, because the 2015 list has a lot of female authors. And the 10 books that I printed in my column had no female authors. Uh, They were were all men. There weren't
0: women back then.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So I just wanted to um, point out that In fact, there were women on the hardcover nonfiction list 30 years ago. I just didn't have room in the column to print the entire list, and there were no women in the top 10. Um, So who are the missing women? the, The missing women at number 13 on the January 13th, 1985 hardcover nonfiction list was the historian Antonia Fraser with a book called The Weaker Vessel about women, in fact, in 17th century England. So it was a kind of a feminist history And at number 15, um, one of the great writers of the 20th century, Eudora Welty, had her memoir, One Writer's Beginnings, which at that time had been on the list for 42 weeks. So uh, not just women, but estimable women. (laughs) The record has
0: been corrected.
4: (laughs) What's new this week? Uh, Looking at the 2015 list, uh, we've got um, two new books on the fiction list. Both continue series. Uh, At number five, Karen Marie Moaning continues her paranormal romance um, Fever World series with a book called Burned. And then at number four, Sarah Addison Allen, I say it continues the series. It's, uh, she has a novel called First Frost, new at number four, that's kind of a follow-up to her 2007 novel Garden Spells about the Waverly Sisters of Bascom, North Carolina. So This is uh, number two in a possible new series.
0: Well, it's a bit apples to oranges, but at least on the fiction side this week in 2015, Nine of the 16 books here are by women. So there's been a little bit of
4: progress. (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right. What's on nonfiction?
4: On nonfiction, there there are also um, some books by women, including a new book, which I'll get to in a minute. There are four new titles in nonfiction, starting at number 14 with a book that is currently on the cover of the book review, Mohamedou Old Slahi's Guantanamo Diary. Then at uh, number 11, Eric Foner, uh, the historian, has a new book called Gateway to Freedom, which looks at New York City's role in abolitionism and specifically the Underground Railroad.
0: And that's reviewed this week in the book review by Kevin Baker.
4: Then at number 10, Alexander Fuller, the woman I talked about, <laughs> um, has a memoir of her divorce. It's called Leaving Before the Rain's Come. This is her third memoir and her third to hit the bestseller list. Um Fuller grew up in Rhodesia during the Civil War there, and her first memoir was called Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. It was about that time. Then she wrote a memoir that was about her very complicated, very strong mother uh, that was called Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness. That also hit the list. And now this book, I talked um, to Fuller recently. She told me that it's not really about her divorce. The divorce happens, but it's no more central than her sister's death or the way she was raised or other facts of her life. Still, it is a book that she hesitated to show to her children. Um, She told me that there's a fine line Between protecting your children, as you should, and smothering them to the point that you're denying the facts of life to them. So she did um, ultimately offer to read relevant bits of the book to her older two children, who are 21 and 17. Her 21-year-old daughter took her up on it. Her 17-year-old son told her, Mom, I lived it. I don't need to read it. <laughs>
0: Clearly other people are, and uh, and some people are really saying this is the best of the three memoirs, so it's getting a very
4: nice response. She is getting better and better. One thing that she told me that I did not have room to put in the column, but that, that I thought was a choice quote, was, I do so well in chaos, it's order that terrifies me. <laughs> Uh, and then the last new book on the hardcover nonfiction list this week is at number three. It's by the former Arkansas governor and Republican presidential hopeful Mike Huckabee, called God Guns, Grits, and Gravy, which is basically a salvo in the culture wars, pitting the good Bubbaville against the evil Bubbleville of uh, the coasts. And so those of us who
0: don't like grits and gravy, we're on the wrong side. That's right. All right. Well, <laughs> now we know where we stand, or at least I do, um, in terms of those food items. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.